Welcome to this, the uh, fifth of the UCL European Institute podcasts and our Talking Europe series. My name is Uta Steiger. I'm executive director of the European Institute, and it is my great pleasure today to welcome Miriam Leonard, Professor of Greek Literature and its reception here at UCL's Department of Classics. Today, um, we are here to discuss a special issue of a journal, Classical Philology, which appeared earlier this year um, and focuses on Hannah Arendt and the ancients. And Miriam edited the volume, but she also wrote the preface and an article on Arendt's revolutionary antiquity, an outcome, I'm very pleased to say, from a conference that the European Institute co-sponsored in late 2015. So welcome, Miriam. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, Hannah Arendt and the Ancients, then. Um, possibly a very brief situating. Um, Hannah Arendt lived through the first three quarters of the 20th century and really was what you could call a political thinker of modernity. Her work covered topics of revolution, of totalitarianism, of the now well-known uh, phrase, banality of evil. Um, you could say, as her 1958 book had it not exactly unambitiously, she was interested in the human condition as a whole. And yet, of course, while thinking through modernity in this way, Arendt made pervasive references to Greek antiquity in her work. And of course, it's now precisely this relationship that the collection of articles that you have brought out um, illuminates so wonderfully. And um, I think, as you put it in the preface, Miriam, it says, Arendt's encounter with the ancients holds the key to understanding some of the most urgent ethical, political and aesthetic questions of our times. So with that, I mean, the real question is, to start us off, you know, why Hannah Arendt? What drew you personally to her work? Um, thank you to the, for that introduction and for situating uh, Arendt in relation to some of the themes in my work and, and her um, talking a bit about her, her relevance to modernity. And I think that may be probably where I started, that, I, that in my reading um, around my interest, she was a name that came up very frequently. Uh, she's an inspiration, as you said, for a lot of the thinkers who I'd already been working on. Um, and uh, in, in particular... Uh, of very contemporary thinkers, people like Judith Butler or mm -hmm. um, uh, s s figures who were talking precisely about questions of political organisation um, today. And how that related back to my uh, my interest is that I've um, for a long time been interested in how questions of um, classical antiquity have been used as a source of inspiration for talking about the problems of modernity, generally speaking, um, but with a particular focus on questions of, of politics. And I started my, um, my work in this area by looking at post-war French philosophy uh, and uh, uh, the, the uh, if, kind of encapsulated in the moment, if you like, the, of... Jacques Derrida reading Plato while the um, students were uh, barricading the Sorbonne. Um, so the <laughs> idea that in May 68, um, uh, Jacques Derrida writes, uh, uh, publishes um, uh, Plato's pharmacy at a time when um, uh, you know, the, the European uh, uh, 
movement of protest is happening at the same time. And I was trying to think through that connection. Was this just a, a rejection of modernity? Was it turning back on the question of politics and action into a sort of scholarly um, antiquarianism or were the two events actually related? Uh, mm -hmm. So in my uh, uh, early work, as I said, I, I worked quite closely on, on the French tradition and how questions of... Um, particularly, again, questions of political subjectivity have been thought through in relation to the legacy of figures like Plato on the one hand and classical um, Greek tragedy on the other. And then I, in order to understand that tradition, I felt like I had to go backwards in time mm -hmm. to understand how people like, you know, Derrida or Foucault had themselves got their ideas about antiquity from figures uh, from largely the German tradition. We think primarily of a figure like Nietzsche or Heidegger as being behind that moment, but they themselves were the, in part of a much longer tradition of German engagements with antiquity, reading back to the 18th century. And so in my, my career, I've sort of done a, um, uh, I keep going backwards, um, trying to kind of pull on the thread of why uh, antiquity has been mm. so important to modernity. And that brought me back to some of, um, uh, all the way back to the Enlightenment, really, and back to that um, uh, originary, uh, kind of moment of uh, engagement with with classical antiquity, and I think we'll see in our conversation how that kind of movement from the contemporary back to uh, the Enlightenment and and the French and American revolutions there has been important for even the way I think about Hannah Arendt. But why Arendt in that? She wasn't actually someone I'd looked at in any great detail um, because she doesn't quite fit into either of those traditions. She's neither in um, the sort of you know, post-war, post-structuralist kind of tradition, which is uh, still very relevant in all sorts of ways, nor um, the kind of tradition of German Philhellenism that I was looking at in another direction, although she's clearly, uh, in, uh, you know, in her relationship to Heidegger in particular, clearly an inheritor of some of those ideas, but she doesn't fit neatly into either of those um, either of those particular traditions and her and yet she um perhaps even more than many of those figures places antiquity at the center of her analyses um and there's a sort of freshness to her approach to antiquity which i thought was really interesting and one that needed to be investigated further great thank you this is really a wonderful setting if you like because on the one hand it it clearly shows to me just how much your own practice is one of reading and rereading <laughs> and recontextualizing and rethinking a history of, of of readings which is of course precisely what Arendt also does in her various temporal references and her reading Marx, reading Hegel, and, and Hegel reading um, the ancient texts. So we have a wonderful sort of parallelism here, which is which is striking. And yes, you do say that she is very fresh. She's very unusual. She didn't even um, call herself a um, political philosopher. She obviously mm. rejected that that sort of specific term herself. And it's therefore also reason, of course, that her, her work's always been quite 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 difficult to grasp, mm. if you like. Um, what I really enjoyed uh, when I started reading your texts was is just how at the very beginning um, you, you set out sort of approaching Arendt and approaching the question of uh, uh, revolution, which is what you focus on in your article, is, uh, in, and how she goes back to the ancients in that, is how you um, sort of set it up 
against um, one of her, you know, most well-known books, which is The Origins of Totalitarianism, which was written roughly a decade earlier. Um, and it's against the deeply pessimistic outlook of the former that you characterised on revolution as her perhaps most hopeful and most optimistic book. And I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about how you situate that in, in the larger context of her yeah. Um, so I do think that there's a sort of uh, very conscious uh, attempt to rethink the 20th century going on in on revolution that, you know, she she had come onto the scene and had made her name through her analysis of um, of uh, Nazism and that um, Stalinism. And, and that, that is how um, she characterized her vision of modernity has was through um, the the uh, forensic and and very historically minded mm -hmm. um, approach to uh, the, that phenomenon, um, and uh, as you say, which was written uh, in 1951, roughly about a decade uh, earlier, and in, in the intervening years, interestingly, she wrote her other magnum opus, which is the um, which is the human condition, yes. which you referenced in the introduction, uh, which is a much more um, philosophical one might say or abstract um, uh, less historical uh, study um, which uh, uh, is related in all sorts of ways to her, her discussion of totalitarianism but goes off in a different direction in particular does something different when antiquity becomes part much more uh, central to her interests uh, there um, so I Many of the kind of concepts, the political concepts that she begins to analyse in the human condition lead her in a different direction, I think, from the kind of historical analysis uh, that she engages in in The Origins of Totalitarianism, and in particular her discussion of action there, um, the, the way in which the, the notion of action becomes central to her political agenda, I think then finds a new kind of historical um, situation in her analysis of the phenomenon of revolution. Um, and that's not to say that I think that the uh, On Revolution is a, a, a wholly optimistic book. It's a very critical book. It's like everything that Arendt writes. It's not, a, um, it's not an easy book, and it's not a book which, uh, which simply celebrates um, a phenomenon. Um, the, uh, Carl Jaspers actually called it a tragic book, and I think there, um, as I mentioned somewhere, I think uh, we can see that from partly as a reference to um, to some of the things she says about tragedy in the book, but in particular to the conclusion, which is rather uh, strange for this book, that she mm -hmm. ends with an analysis of Oedipus at Colonus, uh, Sophocles' last um, play, um, and uh, which wouldn't be necessarily what one would think of when one was thinking of an analysis of 20th century revolution. Um, so, so I don't. So, while I think it is a, it is a hopeful book and it contrasts markedly in tone with the origins of totalitarianism, I don't think it's a, a simple celebration of action. Um, uh, but, but I think it, it is. It, it shows a shift in her uh, thinking towards. Um, towards a kind of uh, discussion of the potentiality of, of uh, action in concert, which is something that she had um, began to sort of conceptualise more abstractly in the human condition. You you talk about um, history and in the, in, in the sort of historical approach, um, and I think in, in interesting ways on revolution 
gives us a good way in here to talk about uh, the relationship and, uh, between past and present and ancient and modern in the sense that she really draws up a, a, a framework with different temporal references. Mm. Um, uh, Greek antiquity, the American and the French revolutions of the late 18th century, and then, obviously, the modernity of, of, of Arendt's 20th century. I just wonder if, if you could expand a little more on exactly that relationship mm. that she begins to draw up between the ancient and the, the, sort of the revolutionary epoch and her own. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's one of the things that's most um, disconcerting about the book, in a way, because it's meant to be a book about uh, what she calls the physiognomy of the 20th century. And as I say, that is very much related to... Uh, in terms of who she represented at the time, would be very much related to her analysis of totalitarianism, which which was sort of the quintessential modern phenomenon that she was associated with. And one of the interesting things there is that in The Origins of Totalitarianism, she really talks about a kind of break. Uh, she sees uh, the advent of Nazism as really creating a, a complete rupture um, in terms of tradition. And it's really at the moment, um, uh, at that point, that one that um, she talks about, you know, a complete inability to see a continuity, uh, to to go to to think about the kind of tradition as a continuity. Interestingly, in of, uh, on revolution, she seems to be able to. Uh, I, I don't think she she goes back on that. I still think that she thinks there is a marked caesura um, uh, or a marked break. But but this the interesting temporality that you sketch shows that there there is this kind of fluidity, this ability to move between uh, different periods, and the book is marked um, on the one hand by this sense of continuity that she she constantly is going back to antiquity, um, and she's constantly putting uh, the uh, the modern her modernity the twentieth century in relation to um, the French and American revolutions. But at the same time, she makes lots and lots of claims in the book about how you know revolution can only be understood as a modern phenomenon, how the ancients never had any idea, any had any real concept of revolution. So she makes these sort of very historicist claims, while at the same time talking about what seems like, if not an unbroken tradition, some sort of, um, I wouldn't necessarily call it tradition, but some sort of um, uh, repertoire, if you like, of of ideas. Uh, which makes sense of the phenomenon of, of um, well, collective action in some form. Let's let's take that up exactly. Your 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 use of the word repertoire. There is, of course, and you mentioned this earlier on, this repertoire, this tradition of German philhellenism, um, which she both belongs to and it doesn't quite. And so uh, she she you I think say she fundamentally reshapes it. Um, what is your sense of her sitting in that tradition of German thinkers across quite a you know mm. a few decades, um, centuries even, engaging with uh, the Greek classical tradition? I mean, I think she's clearly deeply embedded in it. I think uh, very specifically in um, in on revolution, I think she is dealing very directly with the legacy, for instance, of Marx and his understanding of uh, antiquity. I mean, that's that's explicit. She talks about that in the book. Um, I think it's very difficult to think about Hannah Arendt's engagement with the Greeks without bringing up Heidegger. I think Heidegger mm -hmm. was very much in the background, uh, in the background foreground even, of her engagement with classical antiquity, but not in a slavish fashion. Um, there are clearly continuities in terms of her engagement with the Greeks, her way and some um, her 
her, her way of talking about um, uh, antiquity is not one as of sort of historical continuity, but of an attempt to sort of peel back modernity towards a kind of what I talked about at the beginning, a kind of fresh encounter with classical antiquity. And that's something she shares very much with Heidegger, that methodology of not wanting, um, of trying to sort of get rid of the intervening periods between the Greeks and modernity. Um, so, so there are clearly a very similar sort of methodological um, engagements with classical antiquity. And yet, I think she's very clearly rejecting um, much of what Heidegger had to say about the Greeks. She's certainly twisting his sort of metaphysical engagement with the Greeks towards a political engagement. She's critiquing him through her engagement with the Greeks. But in addition to, to Nietzsche and Heidegger, who, um, uh, sorry, I don't think I've mentioned Nietzsche. Nietzsche, I think, is another incredibly important um, background in terms of her her writings, and in some ways, I think her Greeks are probably more Nietzschean than Heideggerian. <laughs> uh, there are continuities there, but in terms of revolution, one could also link, as, as you've already mentioned, to Hegel. You know that, that Hegel played um, an incredibly important role in um, making the Greeks part of a tradition of German identity and German political thinking and he did that very much in the wake of the French Revolution. It was the French Revolution which uh, acted as a filter very much for his political engagement with the Greeks. So I think there is there it's it's it it would it doesn't make sense to talk of Hannah Arendt outside of that story uh, and yet in in a way I think she um, she consciously steps outside of it. She consciously um, uh, has a sort of ironic take on it as well as, as um, clearly being in conversation with it in her writing. Uh, in, an, in a wonderful way is also that I find um, how it comes out, and, and you point to that as well, is just how she also um, uses Marx's reading of the um, ancient texts to actually say Marx was misquoting, was misreading them, mm -hmm. and it is on a different kind of reading that she then um, sets out her own thoughts. And obviously one area where this becomes particularly clear is around the one concept that she um, uh, characterises as the uh, political concept par excellence, which is freedom, mm -hmm. of course. Yeah. Um, so for us today, it, it might sound really counterintuitive, but she argues that the centrality of freedom um, has been absolutely devalued or depreciated mm. in, in modern political thought. And... Um, she puts a lot of the blame for that on Marx precisely because um, she says it's his insistence on the rise of the social that has co-opted or contaminated um, the idea of the political. Now that is quite a controversial move. Can you help us sort of unpack that a little more? Yeah, and I think it's centrally related to her analysis of revolution. So I think there were sort of two um, reasons why Arendt was interested in the phenomenon of revolution and one of one of the very um, uh, pressing issues was to sort of reclaim revolution from a kind of Marxist way of thinking um, and what she, the problem she had with Marx um, and this becomes interestingly associated in the book between the differences between the French Revolution and the American Revolution she sort of aligns Marx and the French Revolution and then the other kind of legacy of revolution, which she associates herself with more, is the American Revolution. But that's the other problem with revolution, is the kind of revolution which disavows its own name. And the problem in the kind of American Revolution was that it was a revolution that then didn't have a kind of legacy 
um, that sort of forgot that it was a revolution and uh, lost that kind of initial um, uh, excitement and initial kind of form of freedom. So she's critical of the sort of uh, uh, kind of American legacy uh, of revolution, which sort of forgets um, that it is a revolution on the one hand, and then she's critical of the Marxist um, tradition of revolution, which, as you say, replaces what she sees as the kind of political ends of revolution with what she calls the social ends of revolution. And what she means by that is um, by saying that revolutions are about freedom, what uh, Arendt means is that uh, revolutions are about kind of uh, um, allowing citizens to perform p political, properly, what she calls properly political acts. Whereas the Marxist legacy of revolution um, made those, or kind of contaminated those political acts with economic um, ends. And so she, so again, very counterintuitively, she, she has a big problem with the French Revolution being directed towards things like issues like poverty, right, which we would think, well, you know, <laughs> why wouldn't you want to you know, um, uh, uh, see the kind of eradication of poverty as, as, a, as a, an end of a revolution? But she sees um, that as being a, a misstep because what you are uh, doing in, in directing uh, your resource, your, your sort of energies towards the eradication of poverty is that you are um, mistaking um, the the end, what she calls, and here she goes back to the ancients, um, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the proper kind of outcome of political action should be the good life. And the good life is uh, the, the life of kind of political association, uh, the life of uh, the kind of the, the public sphere, uh, whereas um, uh, the, the sphere of economics is really what she would associate with, with the the um, the idea of necessity, um, the uh, the area uh, associated with our kind of biological uh, needs, our um, our um, what she calls the kind of life processes, rather than what she uh, envisages as what's the kind of properly human um, uh, ends, which is um, the uh, the public sphere of of uh, of speaking and acting in common. Um, so she thinks that, I mean, in, in sort of in more kind of contemporary terms, she thinks that we are all now uh, far too materialistic. We're, we're, uh, we see when we talk about freedom, what we mean by freedom is kind of freedom of choice, freedom to choose to shop at Waitrose rather than Tesco <laughs> or something along those lines, that we are far too oriented towards kind of economic freedoms when what she was interested in uh, was was political freedom, um, and she thinks that Marx kind of confused the two, and the critique of Arendt is partly that she doesn't um, she she didn't understand the extent to which economics can be political. You know that that mm. the, 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 the uh, ability to separate off those two spheres is much too uh, much more complicated than she, she suggested, and that um, there was a reason why Marx. Uh, was interested, saw, saw political freedom as not being enough for Marx. Political freedom uh, was uh, uh, was the, the possibility of for the political freedom was curtailed by the the perseverance of economic inequality in certain forms. There's quite a lot of sort of corollaries to that criticism as well, um, which have partly been 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 
sort of taken back or re-evaluated, of course, but, you know, the questions of, of gender, the separation mm -hmm. of the household, yes. um, so the relatively um, marginal mentioning that slavery gets mm -hmm. um, when you look at, at the Greek policy. So all the very interesting um, areas um, when it comes to um, sort of her, her, her wider situating of the ideal of politics. Mm -hmm. What is quite striking, I think, in, in, in this, and you mentioned the public sphere, the sort of outgoing, the, 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 the appearing mm -hmm. in public um, activities that uh, for her uh, politics is about, is just to what extent she really does cast this, and particularly in on revolution, in a very clear theatrical language, mm -hmm. a tragic vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So she talks about revolution in terms of a new story that appears that has never been told before. Um, she talks about its plot and the narrative. She even talks about um, people as, as both actors and, and spectators alike. So again, this is obviously a huge topic where you have um, the, the, the tragic and the political, but do you want to expand a little bit on how these two might relate in, in Arendt's thinking? Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, I think she, she talks about it fairly clearly in um, The Human Condition, where she talks about, uh, and again, in a very sort of Heideggerian mode, she looks at the etymology of the word drama. Um, and this is the kind of thing Heidegger does with his Greeks. He always looks at the kind of the etymology. Of, uh, he comes up with these sort of fourth etymologies of Greek terms to mm. understand conceptual ideas. And this isn't actually a fourth etymology. Um, the, uh, uh, the idea of, of drama is crucially related to the idea of action uh, so it, it's from the verb to do right yes. um and so uh when uh um hannah Arendt is talking i think it's in the uh, chapter on work when she's talking about um uh, art she says that uh, drama is the political art par excellence because mm. drama uh, is the uh, sort of encoding of action um, and I think that uh, gives us a sense of why she's interested in tragedy. And, and um, in, so she could she could have gone down the comic line. She doesn't actually preclude mm -hmm. comedy uh, mm. when she discusses it in the human condition. But in her actual work, she seems to take tragedy much more as uh, again, which is a very uh, has a long legacy. In, for instance, in Hegelian thinking, to, to go back to tragedy as a kind of political metaphor. Um, so I think that's that that's a. Uh, a because action becomes so central and also uh, Arendt is very clear that action on its own isn't um, good enough. What you need is action plus sort of some sort of remembrance or some sort of recollection of action. And drama is that, um, uh, that making permanent of the kind of uh, very fleeting moment of action. So you can see there why drama became a very important phenomenon for her. But then from there, um, she talks in... Already in the origins of totalitarianism, she she presents the Dreyfus affair as if it's a, a tragedy, right? And mm -hmm. it's a metaphor that comes back in the Eichmann trial too. She she uses um, dramatic metaphors there, uh, but it's really in a revolution where it's most explicit. Where, as I said, I think I mentioned earlier, she, that she ends the text with this quotation uh, from um, the uh, Oedipus at Colonus. Um, should I talk a bit about that? Yes, I was going to ask you very specifically, actually, about that um, relationship between um, the uh, the tragic and the theatre revolution in the in in the way that it it hinges on the same double bind, if you like, between um, freedom and necessity, mm -hmm. and on our 
paradoxical relationship between what we can do and what we are forced to do or what we are not allowed to do, be this by circumstance or power or fate. And that's something that, that um, the despotism of liberty, which Robespierre uh, formulates, and, and specifically the Oedipus experience at Colonis, they both have that in common. And I just wondered whether you could, you could explain for us what actually happens to Oedipus there, what does he say, what are the words that he's, he's using, and why that becomes so incredibly relevant that he finishes that book mm. on those uh, on those lines. Yeah. So we've talked, as you say, a little bit about how freedom and necessity are interesting ideas in her concept of revolution. She she rejects the Marxist kind of um, analysis of revolution because of its attention to questions of necessity, to questions of uh, you know sort of biological need and moves towards freedom. So you can see that as a kind of background. Uh, but in the sort of German. Um, Philhellenic tradition that we've been talking about, there was a very, very influential reading of tragedy which emerges um, around the time of the French Revolution, uh, which has often been called things like the philosophy of the tragic, uh, which uh, moved away from a kind of the vision of tragedy that had had largely dominated up to then, which was one of um, sort of aesthetic appreciation, one that, that sort of returned to tragedy via Aristotle to thinking about how to form a perfect plot and so on and so forth, towards starting to think about tragedy as having something to do with um, the, uh, I mean, the, I suppose, the, the human condition in a very um, abstract sense, um, and how uh, what tragedy repeatedly seemed to stage was uh, an analysis of the human condition stuck somewhere between human agency on the one hand and determinism on the other, or fatalism. And this was a huge um, uh, philosophical interest uh, in the late uh, 18th century, in particular to figures like Kant, uh, but uh, 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 in relation to tragedy, to German idealism. Um, and German idealism developed through figures like Schelling, Hölderlin and Hegel, developed an analysis of tragedy. Oedipus becomes a kind of exemplary figure because his fate um, contrasts, uh, a, uh, on the one hand, a kind of enormous power uh, of, uh, of human agency. So in his, uh, uh, one of the kind of paradigmatic moments for Oedipus is his encounter with the Sphinx. And in, in his encounter with the Sphinx, uh, the Sphinx who has been uh, keeping the citizens of uh, Thebes under her spell, um, uh, and they've been suffering uh, um, under her spell, um, Oedipus turns up and uh, she asks him a question, um, and uh, the answer to the question turns out to be man, and Oedipus uses his great intellect um, to uh, overcome the Sphinx, who it represents a sort of forces of the irrational, but also of kind of fate, really, in some form of love. And there you see, in answering the question man, Oedipus embodies what is greatest about man, which is human reason. Uh, so uh, there... Uh, you have uh, Oedipus, one side of Oedipus, this this um, this figure who uses his intellect uh, to uh, to tower over the forces of the irrational um, and shows human ingenuity its best. Uh, the other side of Oedipus, as we all know, is the um, the fact that his life is fated, and the fact that uh, even though he manages to have this great success, uh, he ends up by find by finding out uh, that he has unsuspectedly murdered his father and married his mother, um, 
and all of this uh, despite wanting to escape this fate. He finds out this fate uh, from an oracle and does everything in his life to try and escape it. In the end, he ends up fulfilling it. Um, and so uh, this, uh, this kind of paradox of how can you, on the one hand, exemplify um, the force of human reason, the, the ability to, to control one's own fate, on the one hand, on the other hand, being completely trapped by a fate, uh, that uh, want, that you can do everything you want to to escape but end up having to reenact, um, really um, became a, um, a, a, a sort of metaphor for this contrast between freedom and necessity. And uh, for, so for figures like Schelling and Hegel, uh, Oedipus really exemplifies this contrast uh, between uh, what Arendt then talks about as sort of the possibilities of action versus a form of kind of determinism um, and um, uh, un unthinking sort of reproduction of uh, fate in some form or another. Because, of course, we say she finishes with the lines of, of, of Oedipus, but it isn't quite. She has a very few lines just after in which she actually talks not so much about Oedipus per se, but about Theseus, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's right. So what she, so so uh, Hannah Arendt goes to the final play of Oedipus, which is the the play about his fate after he finds out that he has married his mother and killed his father, and he blinds himself. And the Oedipus at Colonus is all about uh, the you know what happens to live on after that realization. And there's this very famous moment in that play where the chorus come um, uh, narrate the the. Oedipus's fate and they come up with what's called the wisdom of Silenus which is the idea it's best never to be born um, uh, and the next best thing is to die quickly so this incredibly sort of pessimistic outlook on life uh, which was a very very important to Nietzsche's vision of the Greeks um, that they had this clear-sightedness about the futility of existence which you could see very much encapsulated in that ode so the best best not to be born um, so Arendt goes to that and says, uh, how is it that a poet can, on the one hand, tell us that, you know, tell us that the, the kind of um, the encapsulation of what it is to be human is to have this futile existence where it's better never to be born. And on the other hand, uh, in the same play, uh, have this figure of Theseus, uh, Theseus, who's the ruler in Athens, who decides to bring in out Oedipus as an outcast. It's a kind of moment of political asylum, basically. He decides to, to adopt Oedipus, knowing everything he knows about him, not unknowingly. He, he takes in this figure, this, this outcast, um, and, introduce, and sort of co-ops him into the city. And, and so uh, that uh, bringing Oedipus back into the community that Theseus embodies for Arendt is the antidote to the futility of existence, the possibility of living in common, the possibility of being part of a kind of political um, structure and political relationship for her redeems the futility of existence that we see um, uh, enacted in the Silenus. So that really is sort of the kernel of, of hope, if you, if you like, the sort of utopianism, the redemption, put it that way, the redemption of the polis as an area where we can act together as, as human beings and sort of overcome this incredibly bleak um, realisation of the limits of, of, of human action otherwise. Yes, I think that's right. And it, but, but it's also one, again, 
by putting it within the context of drama, I think what she's doing there is by sh showing us that even that is not for an un, you know it's to an uncertain end. You know, we we um, it, the um, this is still a tragedy. You know, uh, um, uh, political actions uh, can uh, have great sources but lead to tragic outcomes. And I think uh, what she wants to show in that end point is that actually it's that realisation that action is, is, is fragile, that it's, um, it's open-ended. Uh, but it's that open-endedness, that fragility, that possibility of it going wrong or right, which actually makes action really, really important. And I think that's why she ends um, uh, on revolution in that way. It's not, it's not a kind of easy celebration of revolutionary movements. Uh, as, as I say, there's as much critique of things like the French Revolution in that book as there is, um, as there is praise. Uh, but what she comes back to, I think, is, is that, that we don't have anything other than kind of collective yes. action to redeem ourselves. But, we, but um, a part of the kind of power of that collective action comes from that realization that that we can't control it you know that that it does put that has outcomes that we can't predict which of course sort of is a parallel to what she wrote in the human condition where she qualified action as both um unpredictable and irreversible mm -hmm. and obviously the paradox is if something's irreversible it restricts our freedom of action so yes. in some respects where we are most free we're also still constrained. But she overcomes that with references to um, forgiveness and to promise. Mm -hmm. So that movement to promise is perhaps not unaligned in some respects to Theseus um, adopting Oedipus. It is never a fully qualified redemption. Yes. But it is sort of a last movement of insisting that it's still necessary. I think that's absolutely right. And I think, and I think that's also a very good way of sort of understanding the relationship between the origins of totalitarianism and on revolution, that on revolution is the kind of, it's the promise, right? Mm -hmm. um, because uh, you might want to contrast it by saying, I mean, we haven't been able to talk about natality and that that is an important yes. concept for her and is related to action. And one of the reasons why I think she's so interested in the Silenusode, because it's this explicitly anti-natalist text that's about best never to be born, right? Yes. And yet aren't associates what it is to be human with being born and the, the promise if you like of being born the hope of being born um and so i think uh the um the the relationship between on revolution and some of her earlier work is partly to do with this idea of, of promise and it's not and it's not something which uh, then negates the dangers of action or the possible because totalitarianism is also the outcome of actions yes in some form or other so it's not it's not a kind of utopianism uh, but but it's but it but there is a kind of potential uh, uh, there which i think she wants to emphasize and with that very very nicely we've kind of come back to the beginning in a in a suitably circular fashion which <laughs> hannah aaron tried to um, break through with her with her thinking and the one thing we as you say didn't uh, manage to talk about too much is the question of beginnings but perhaps well we will have to end with um, um, an ending without the beginning and maybe keep that um, for a, another time in the future. Thank you so much, Miriam, for a wonderful conversation. Um, it's been absolutely wonderful to talk you through um, all those different areas of your work and um, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much indeed.